because it's an election year and because we're living in times that are kind of particularly politically challenging, we, we thought that this would be a good moment for us to kind of examine what the Bible has to say about our civic responsibility. How are Christians supposed to think about government, and what is the role that we, as citizens of Jesus' eternal kingdom, uh, what is our role that we're supposed to play? So as I was preparing for today's message, I came across something uh, by a theologian named Wayne Grudem uh, that I felt was particularly helpful. And uh, in it, he gave us uh, five wrong views of government that I want to run through these uh, really quickly together. And then we're going we're gonna to delve into Scripture and we're going to get a proper biblical view and see how God expects us to respond. So the first wrong view is that government should compel religion. You know, genuine faith cannot be forced on people by the government. And, and yet I think that there are Christians uh, who exist today who, who feel that the laws that were given specifically to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, I feel like there's some Christians who think that we should be trying to impose those upon Americans today. I don't think the Bible teaches that, and uh, I think that Jesus taught us of kind of a separation between the church and the state uh, in Matthew 22 when he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. The second wrong view is that government should exclude religion. Uh, Many think that that's what separation of church and state means, that the government should have absolutely nothing to do with religion and It occurs to me that that would be more of a freedom from religion than a freedom of religion. And every time that we've really seen this put into practice, we see that what it results in is a limitation of people's freedom of religion. But worse than that, it results in removing God's teaching about what is good and what is evil from the very people who are expected Uh, to execute justice on his behalf. Uh, The third wrong view is that uh, all government is evil and demonic. And uh, this idea kind of comes from, you know, when Jesus was, like like Ryan said, when Jesus was being tempted as we were, when when, uh, Satan was tempting him in the desert, Satan told him, like, hey, I've been given all authority over all of the kingdoms. And uh, I think when you look in Scripture, we see that... uh, it refutes the lies that the father of lies uh, told to Jesus. Um, He said that he had all authority and glory, but Daniel wrote in the Old Testament that the the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13 that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So I think that Uh, we can't conclude from that that government is evil. The fourth wrong view is that Christians should focus on the gospel and not on politics. How often have you heard a Christian say something like, you know, I don't really really bother with politics, not really interested in that. I just like to focus on what's really important, which is the gospel. And, And I think that sometimes we feel that way because the word politics has has become like a dirty word, right? We associate it with 
uh, political corruption, and we feel like, oh, I shouldn't have anything to do with that. Uh, but what the word politics means is the activities associated with governance. Uh, in other words, you could say that politics are the works that civil servants do on behalf of the people. And I think that Christians should be very interested in that. Uh, theologian Wayne Grudem said it this way, uh, should churches teach their people how to do good works in families, in hospitals, and in schools, and in business, and in neighborhoods, but not in government? There's nothing in Scripture that suggests that Christians should neglect government. In fact, we're going to see in a moment that we're told to engage with politics in some very important ways. The fifth wrong view is that Christians should focus on politics and not on the gospel. And I don't think very many Christians would claim to ascribe to this view, uh, but we're seeing more and more uh, churches uh, spending more time on promoting social justice causes than they are on promoting the life-transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Mr. Grudem, again, he has some insight for us. He says, if we ever begin to think that good laws alone will solve a nation's problems or bring about a righteous and just society, we will have made a huge mistake. Now, as I read about these views... Uh, it, it dawned on me that to some degree I have held all five of them uh, from time to time. And, and maybe that's you as well. Uh, sometimes we feel like government is everything that's wrong with the world. And other times we find ourselves believing that if we could just elect the right people or appoint the right judges or prosecute the right criminals or write the right laws, then everything will be better. You know, I, I kind of vacillate between, you know, wanting the government to force everyone to be just like me and then ranting and raving about how I'm being oppressed and deprived of my liberty. And the, the problem when we do these kind of things is that we're putting our hope in humanity, in our own ability to govern ourselves rather than acknowledging the one who has instituted government and is able to provide for us. So this morning, we're going to spend some time examining a biblical view of governance, and we find this primarily in Romans chapter 13 in the first seven verses, which I'll read to us now. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. 
For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So, the first truth that we see in this passage is our big idea this morning, which is this. God has instituted governmental authority over us as a gracious blessing. See, God instituted governmental authority over us as a demonstration of what we call common grace. This is God's way of blessing all of mankind through kind of ordinary means. And it's played out in four purposes of government that we find in our text. The first purpose is a restraint against evil. So, you know, as bad as the world may seem sometimes, as bad as our nation may seem sometimes, it's not as bad as it could be if our sin was unrestrained. See, God restrains evil in the world in a variety of ways uh, of common grace, but uh, quite often the only thing that's keeping people from doing evil things is kind of the threat of negative consequences. And the most common way that God uh, does that is through the threat of governmental punishment. Uh, it says in our, in our text that the rulers are a terror to bad conduct. Similarly, the, the government also uh, gives approval of that which is good. They, they commend and support good things because whether they understand it or not, they are servants of God for our good. And in this way, God's common grace operates to encourage people not only to restrain their evil, but also to actually do good works. So with these two things alone, we can see that government is a good thing. And yet we have to remember that common grace is not enough to bring real change to the world. It's extended to everyone universally. It benefits everyone, but it doesn't make a single person right with God. Not doing evil to avoid consequences or doing good to uh, get personal gain or recognition, that is not the same thing as righteousness. You know, Romans 8 reminds us that those who are in the flesh, those who, who don't have the Holy Spirit, they're hostile to God and uh, they cannot submit to Him. Romans 8.8 8 tells us those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So yeah, the government is a blessing uh, because it's kind of effective at restraining evil and it promotes good behavior, but it can't restore us to what is needed for real transformational change, a right relationship with God. And this is why government is rarely a good solution to social problems that would require genuine change in people. But thankfully, God didn't stop short of, of only providing us with common grace. You know, though we, we could never please God on our own, and thus we could never earn His love or forgiveness, God has offered His forgiveness to us simply because He loves us already, despite our sin. And this is what we call special grace. Romans 5.8 tells us what that is. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived 
that perfect life, free from sin. And that pleased God. And then he died on the cross on our behalf. He, he paid the penalty for our sin, which is death. And if we believe in Jesus, then his righteousness is extended to us. And then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us so that we can be pleasing to God as well. And also as the Holy Spirit operates in us, we begin to be more and more like Jesus. And that is what brings real change to the world. One day Jesus will return and our old sin nature will be done away with once and for all. And, and it's only on that day when we'll really experience the fullness of living in the kingdom of God under the perfect governance of the one true king, Jesus. But in the meantime, we do get a blessing of a world in which evil is restrained somewhat and good is done to some degree, and that comes through human government. The third purpose of government is to punish wrongdoing. You see, God is just as much about justice as he is about grace and mercy. And Paul, in the previous chapter, in chapter 12 of Romans, he, he had exhorted people to never repay evil for evil or to avenge themselves. And then in verse 19, it says this, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, when wrongdoing is punished by God's appointed governmental authority, Romans 13 tells us that his wrath is carried out, and God is glorified in that justice has been served. We, on the other hand, are told to live peaceably with all and allow God to see that justice is being done, and he often does that through government authority. The last purpose of government that we see here is uh, that it teaches us how to submit to the Father. It says there is no authority except from God. But the truth is it's difficult for us, right, to submit ourselves to authority. In life, we're given lots of opportunities to do this, right? We have our parents, uh, then our teachers, employers, church leaders, the head of our household, and yeah, also the civil authorities. We cannot refuse to submit to these people and say, you know what, I only submit to God because God has put these people in our lives. He, has been, he was the one who gave them their authority. If, if you're like me and you sometimes say, you know, I just kind of have a problem with authority, well, what you're really saying is that you have a problem with those that God has put in authority over you. And the good news is, the government gives us lots of opportunities to learn this lesson. So I think that most of us fall into one of three ditches. Now, when Ryan preaches, we only get two ditches. Uh, but when you give me the microphone, you get a bonus. So, uh, First, we feel that the government is not a blessing but is a nuisance or oppressive. That's one of our ditches. But on the other side of the street, uh, some, some feel that the government is kind of like supposed to be our savior or solving all of our problems. And then I think there's a third ditch. I, I don't know where it is, but it's there. And 
Some of us feel that the, go the government's just kind of irrelevant and we just don't really care. But I think those are the three camps that we kind of uh, visit sometimes. And whichever one you find yourself hopping into when you think about politics, my challenge to you is the same. Read through the words of Romans 13, 1 through 7 a couple of times this week in your quiet time with the Lord. And as you do, pray about it. And think about the ways that the civil authorities have been of benefit to you and your family. Now, I know that for some of us, our relationship with the authorities that God has placed over us is complicated at best. And if when you're reading through the scripture, if, if all you can think about is how civil authorities have harmed you, then I would encourage you to appeal to the king in a time of prayer. See, Jesus intends for government to be a blessing and, and it has uh, intended purposes, but now we need to kind of look and see, well, what, what is our role in response to this? And the first role that we see is subjection, uh, or we could say obedience. See, we're followers of King Jesus. We are subjects of his kingdom. But Paul is telling us here that the king has appointed certain governing authorities over us, and we are subject to them as God's representatives. And at a very basic level, all this really means is that we are expected to obey the law as long as it is not contrary to God's revealed will that we find in his word. But I'd say this, uh, I think that as Americans, there's an additional layer of this. Because see, God has put authorities in place, but in our system of governance, a Republican democracy... For us, a significant portion of the ruling power has been entrusted to who? We, the people. Therefore, if we're old enough to vote, we have a responsibility before God to know what God expects of our government and what kind of moral and legal standards that he wants government officials to uphold. And this has a couple of implications the first is that we have to exercise our God-instituted authority. That means we have to elect leaders who will uphold these standards, and that involves some work on our part. We have to take the time to become informed about the candidates and the issues, and we have to study what the scriptures say about them. Maybe it means that we support a particular candidate's uh, candidacy, but it definitely means that we actually show up and we vote. That's what God has appointed us to do. The second thing is, we have to submit to that elected leadership, even when our candidate doesn't win. Now, sometimes it seems like none of the candidates are living up to God's standards, right? How, how can we vote for, much less uh, submit to, a government leader who appears to be immoral personally detestable, and hasn't always done the right thing. Well, all I can say to that is this. If, if you're waiting for the perfect candidate to run for office, or you're looking for a country to pledge your allegiance to that has never made any mistakes, 
you're just not going to find what you're looking for. Because Jesus isn't running for office. And his kingdom has not fully come yet. But here's the good news. Jesus is already king of every nation. And according to scripture, he has appointed every government that has been or will be. So this is what we do. We exercise wisdom and discernment and we make the best choice that we possibly can from the options that he's put in front of us. That's our part. The outcome is all up to Jesus. And we can trust him because he is good and he works all things for our good. Paul understood this. At the time that he wrote Romans 13, and Peter, he wrote similar words in his first letter a short time later, Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. The Jews, including many of the early Christians, they were not being treated well by the Roman government. Do you remember in, in Acts 18, it talks about uh, Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. And why were they there? Because the Jews had been forcibly expelled from Rome. They'd been kicked out of their homes and taken away from their businesses. They were being oppressed. Later, Paul would be beheaded by this government. Peter would be crucified by this government. And many, many Christians would meet a grisly end at the tip of a gladiator's spear or by the teeth of lions. This is the government that was in place when Paul wrote these words. And my point is that Paul and Peter, they may not have considered the Roman Empire a government worthy of their allegiance or support, and yet in Scripture they declared it as God-ordained and they commanded subjection to it. And we see this throughout Scripture. Remember David? He had been appointed as the next king of Israel. And then he was being persecuted by Saul. And he found himself one day in a position where he could sneak up on Saul and kill him. This is what he said at that time in 1 Samuel 24. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Daniel served Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah told the exiles to seek the welfare of the cities where they found themselves. The Bible is full of examples of God's people submitting to the imperfect and often quite evil governmental authorities that God placed over them. So as Americans... We have a dual responsibility. We are, in one sense, civil authorities appointed by God, and we wield the power of the sword at the ballot box and in the jury box. And it's important that we do not neglect this civic duty. In another sense, we're subject to the authorities that we elect, and it's important that we submit to them. So this week, my challenge to you is, as you're reading through this passage and you're quiet time. Think about the job you've done in your roles as a civil authority and as a subject of that authority. And just pray and ask God to help you be faithful in both of them, especially in this election year. Um, getting back to our roles, we also see that we are not to become a part of the resistance 
Paul says we incur judgment because we have resisted what God has appointed. Now, Paul was almost certainly referring to the Jewish zealots of his day. These were people who sometimes would rise up a a violent uprising against Rome. Roman culture had this kind of belief in the, the divine right of kings, and most people in Roman culture did not really think to question authority because of this. But I think that these new Roman converts, as they realize that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the only divine king, I think they were, they were probably coming to a place where they were questioning governmental authority for the first time. And then they probably saw the persecution of their Christian brothers and sisters, and, and maybe they were angry or tempted to join with the zealots and be a part of the resistance. Paul prohibited them from this course of action. So that kind of leads us to our own world today, right? Is, is protesting okay? You know, I was kind of surprised when a few of you uh, asked me recently, you know, is it okay if I go to a protest? I remember mentioning that to uh, a fellow pastor, and he just kind of chuckled. He said, he said uh, Presbyterians are Protestants, right? <laughs> he said, how, how could you be opposed to protesting I think that protesting the actions or policies of the government is not a refusal to submit to their authority. It's an attempt to influence them. And there's nothing unbiblical about exercising our freedom of speech. You know, Romans 13 and passages like it, and in fact, all of Scripture, right? It's not there so that Christians will have some kind of secret knowledge about what God expects of the civil authorities. No, God expects the civil authorities to hear this. He wants them to see his revealed word so that they will know what his will is for them. And Christians are really the only people who can speak that to them. In Scripture, we see many examples of believers influencing civil authorities from Joseph to Moses to Daniel, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ himself, and Paul and Peter and other apostles. Christians should be communicating biblical truth to those who are in authority. However, the Bible does give us some helpful boundaries. And the first one is that we should have respect and honor. Protests have to be respectful and give honor to those that God has appointed. So burning effigies or profanity or obscenities written on signs or rude gestures or any of this kind of thing, no matter how clever and funny it is, that is not honoring to God's appointed and as such would not be honoring to God himself. Remember that story about David sneaking up on Saul you know, he, what he did was he, he had a chance to kill him, but instead he kind of maybe like a joke. He snuck up and he cut off the corner of his robe. And then he, he went back. And later Saul would see that it had happened and maybe think, wow, I came close to, to dying. But what happened? It, 
It struck David in the heart, is what Scripture said. Just this disrespectful act of cutting his robe cut David to the heart because it dishonored him. We're also told in Ephesians 4.29 that we should have no corrupting talk. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Building up, not tearing down. When we speak to those who are in power, whether we're at a protest or we're just sending an email to a representative or some official in government, or maybe we're posting something on social media, on the internet, we need to make our words edifying. That means our words need to be constructive and not just critical. And finally, we're expected to be nonviolent. Our protesting becomes the resistance when we become violent. It's not biblical to express our anger and frustration with the government or with society through assaulting others or vandalizing property or burning things down or terrorizing people or stealing things that don't belong to us. Romans 12, 8 says, As far as it depends on us, we are to live peaceably with all. All right, let's move on. The next role that we have is as servants. Paul refers to the governmental authorities as servants of God and ministers of God. He calls them servants of God twice and ministers once. And what's interesting is that when, when he says servants of God, he uses the word diakonos. This is the word that we get the word deacon from. And when he says ministers of God, he uses the word leotorgos, which is where we get the word liturgy from. These are words that we normally associate with people who serve within the church. The implication is that people who serve in the government are doing God's work, that they are specifically called to what they do. Now think about this for a minute. Think about all of the people who are civil servants, teachers, DMV people, soldiers, police officers, firefighters, senators, road workers. Whether somebody's an an analyst working out of their, their home office or the president of the United States working out of the Oval Office, they are doing the work of deacons and ministers. They are being used as God's instruments to help meet the needs of the people. Now, maybe we will find that we have a calling into civil servanthood. Sometimes Christians wonder if that's okay, and I would say Christians certainly can and absolutely should respond to such calls. And the rest of us should be supporting them because they're doing the Lord's work in the same way that you support the church staff or Ryan and Megan. And Paul gives us three ways that we can be supportive of our civil servants. 
The first is that we pay taxes and revenues. The second is that we pay honor and respect. And the third is that we pray for them. So, Christians should pay taxes. I know I don't like it any more than you do. But like tithes that pay the salaries of those who work for the church, taxes pay the salaries of those who give their full time to governing. When we pay our taxes, we're not simply giving money in exchange for services. We are supporting those that God has called into service. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and by that he meant taxes. Now, in Paul's day, taxes were considered pretty excessive and oppressive. To be a tax collector in, in Paul's day was like the worst thing you could possibly be. But despite his legitimate grievances about overtaxation, Paul still commanded us to pay them. And in fact, he says that we do it not because it's like nice, but we do it because we owe it to them. And civil servants are also owed honor and respect. And we talked about this a little bit already, but I just want to say one of the downsides of free speech is that people feel that they have a license to be disrespectful to those who are in authority. Now, some of you might counter and say, hey, respect is something that's earned. But I say, I don't see that in Romans 13. Paul says these authorities are servants of God, not because they earned that title, but because they have been appointed by God. And when we disrespect the representative of the king, we disrespect the king himself. Now, Christians... You can exercise your free speech, but you have to do it with the honor and respect that is owed to the one who placed people in those positions. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you honored a civil servant? Maybe you thanked a a soldier or before uh, social distancing, maybe you shook his hand. Maybe you brought cookies to a fire, none of my examples you can do anymore. Uh, I was going to say maybe you brought cookies to a to a firehouse or a police station or something like that. Uh, how how could we be proactive in showing honor and respect? The last thing, the last role that we have is that we should be praying for our civil servants. Right in First Timothy chapter two. Paul writes this, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all peoples, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, in order to diligently pray for anyone, uh, uh, especially for people in high positions, you know, governmental authorities, we first, we got to know who they are. We should know what issues they're facing and what problems they're trying to solve and what challenges are in their way. Maybe it would be helpful to us to know if they're believers. But the point is, we have to be paying attention to them. So let me ask you a hard question. Can you name your mayor? 
or your city council person, your county representative, your state senator or representative? Or how about the governor or our, sen- our state senator, I mean our uh, federal senators or our congressperson? We probably all know who the president is, but do you know who's speaker of the house or who's president of the senate or the majority leader of the senate? How about your mail carrier? Do you know their name? How about the local fire chief, the local police chief? Do you know who serves on your school board? Maybe you know all of these names, or maybe you know a few of them. Maybe you don't know any of them. But we need to know them. And we need to know more about what they do and what they're working on if we want to be truly in prayer for them. Now, I know you can't memorize that whole list and keep up with all those people If you're doing that, you're probably way too obsessed with politics. But what if we started by just picking one a week and praying for them in our quiet time? Just visit their website or Google them. Just see what's going on. And then pray that their heart would be, like it says in Proverbs 21, that their heart would be like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, turned whichever way he wills. God is in control, church. We can't always see the blessing of government, but it's there. And if we trust in Him, as we vote in this November election, as we go about our lives, it'll go wherever He wills. I hope this has been helpful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You are good and that we can trust You. Lord, I thank you for the government, which is not something that I ever thought I would say. But Lord, it is a blessing, and I thank you for your word that sets us straight when we fail to remember that. Lord, we know that our civil servants are not perfect. Lord, we know that they make mistakes, and Lord, there there are plenty of things that we want to see change in our nation and around the world. Lord, we pray that your gospel would go forth, that you would give us opportunities to speak biblical truth to those who are in authority, that their hearts and minds would be opened to the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we continue on in an uncertain world and in uncertain times, but absolutely certain that you are in control. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.